just recorded our 147 or 947th episode so and I got asked during the recording what are we going to do for our thousands episode and I, and I hadn't thought of that so um, if anybody's got ideas on it let me know hey Long Chun good to see you Michael um, but today uh, in today's Ascendo Reliability webinar event I want to talk about lessons learned some of the basics of this and some of the background a little bit of what's behind why we need to do this and as usual I'll be asking questions and looking for your input but uh, let me let me go ahead and get started and hope my computer stays up it's crashed two times already and so far I've learned that my computer crashes usually shortly after getting it all set up and running and opening up the comp the room and everything else. But I haven't figured out exactly why. So it's frustrating as a, and it's intermittent. I can't reproduce it on command or anything like that, but I'm trying to learn about that. Um, the hard part is that we all learn stuff in our organizations, our, in our lives and everywhere else. And we learn some things, you know, deliberately. We go read the book, basically read the manual. And then sometimes we learn things the hard way. And those are the ones that are painful for us and our customers and everything else. The unfortunate part is that we also forget. And there's a lot of mechanics and mechanisms at play and why we forget. And it's there's, there are a few rare people that never forget anything. And I don't know how they do it. Uh, I, I found that I have a, a, a three stack memory, uh, three cell stack memory. If I go to the grocery store and I have three things, I'm fine. I can pick up the lettuce, the carrots, and the broccoli. And if I have a fourth item on that list, something gets dropped. And so I get to the store and I'm like, hmm, what was the fourth thing? Um, just the way my short-term memory is wired. And some people have mechanisms and algorithms for remembering more, yet at some point you're going to forget most of what is happening in your day, in the short-term memory, things that are important or have connections or significance at some point, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But we often forget as individuals and we forget as organizations, the things we do as an organization with a group of people. And there's a number of reasons for that. Likewise, so we'll, we'll dive into a little bit of that. But do we have to repeat that cycle? Do we have to just assume that we're going to forget things as we go? And we're doomed to repeating previous mistakes. And I know there's a famous quote out there about, you know, if you don't pay attention to history, you're, you're bound to repeat it or something like that. The, and it's true. And, it, and there's a handful of reasons this occurs and has happened over and over again with individuals, with groups, with teams, with countries, all kinds of stuff. We're, if we don't learn from our past, we're going to make mistakes that we should not have done. And I'm going to talk about a little bit of the mechanisms, but also a lot about, well, what can we do about that? So the very first question is, and this one for people that, that regularly attend these webinars and know about Ascendo reliability. Um, yeah, there's lots of ways we learn. And I, 
you know, a handful of you are here because this is a, a way that you like learning about a topic or, you know, refreshing it in your memory or whatever it is. I'm quite sure every one of you is, is familiar with lessons learned and, and uh, within your organization or with just the, you know, that phrase and the systems that go about it. But how do you go about learning things? What are the handful of ways that you recognize that you're learning something? Yeah, I'll take a quick break here and get a sip of water. This is to get you on the chat window here. Doing? Yeah, just try it, it you know? Especially when it's something that's, you know, uh, playing with Play-Doh is a great way to learn. Playing with very expensive hardwoods is... Um, Expensive, I should say. Um, that comes from uh, experience. Yeah, repetition. Um, a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to learn how to make cheese. And I'm up to 150 different uh, makes of cheese, different cheeses I've made. Not in a lot of repeats of those. And I must say that I am getting better, at least more confident. That's her history in high school. Yeah, the formal education from trying it, uh, learning from mistakes. You know, we often use fracas, failure reporting and corrective action systems or CAPA, corrective action, preventative action systems to, to um, one, make sure we resolve issues that we find or mistakes or errors that are, have occurred, but also we have that as a record, we can learn from it. Yeah, lots of different ways. So let's... Um, take a look at some of the ways we go about doing it. And the most obvious one is formal. We start at a young age, um, even with our parents. And it's not, maybe it's not formal when we're two years old, yet learning how to walk is just the, the trying it and doing it. But very early on, we're in preschools and kindergarten and grade schools, some form of formal education, all the way up to, for many of us, is going through high school, college, universities, advanced classes, um, many of us have attended uh, coursework, whether it's like through Udemy or um, uh, EDX or events sponsored by where we work. We have classes and workshops and some are required. I remember classes when I worked in uh, Hewlett Packard and we were, were making circuit boards or populating and soldering up circuit boards for printers. And we had required classes on uh, electrostatic discharge and how to uh, not damage our components, uh, solder safety, because you know if you are soldering and breathing too much of that stuff, it's not good for you and all those kinds of things. And then we also have uh, structures around continuing to read and attend webinars and go to uh, conferences and you know do things like that with our continuing education. So if you've got a, a professional engineering uh, license or chartered engineer license or a, a professional society uh, um, a, a certificate, all of those things, you know, um, I got a warning and popped up, but it didn't seem to be affecting anything. Um, yep. Learning by repetition is a great way. There's the the 
the idea is, is that we have lots of formal educational systems and yeah, you can go to the course over and over again, but I don't think that's what we mean when we're saying repetition. It's just try it and observe the results and try it again. If you're really, you know, particular about how you learn, yeah, getting thrown into the deep end, um, it, you know, sink or swim is kind of a parallel to that. It, it, the, the idea is, is that we have to be willing to learn, to take on challenges. And, and formal education is not always the greatest one because sometimes we're not volunteers in that system. Sometimes I heard one colleague call it is you have a class full of prisoners that are required to be in the class. And they're not necessarily the best students because they're, they're not really motivated to want to learn the subject. This isn't a class or a webinar about learning yet it's one way we go about doing it is we learn a lot of things. Uh, just the other day, uh, I, I saw a comment that trees only grow to a certain height and, and they said it was like 250 feet or 300 feet. And I'm looking out my window where I live and there's redwoods and these trees are pretty darn close to 300 feet. And I thought, hmm, how am I going to measure these things? I remember trigonometry but I don't remember right off whether if I, you know, walk away from the edge of the uh, um, tree and get a right angle and measure the angle to the top, I could use a sine or a cosine. It's the angle in the adjacent edge. I think that's sine. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But I do remember where to look that up, at least enough to get me started. And I don't remember the exact equation from, and I know I passed a test on it where I had to way back when. I admit I forgot bits of pieces of my formal education and I'm quite certain that most of you have too. It's okay. It's just a part of what we do and how we work and so on. Now, many of the comments you made about where do we re, you know, do learn and everything else is repetition and give it a try. Um, but there's also reading and studying blog posts, listening to podcasts, uh, talking to your, your colleagues, asking a question from you know, somebody else in your organization, you respect their approach or their opinion on something. A lot of it comes down to, it's really useful when we're doing failure analysis from curiosity. What are we, how could this have happened? What are the bits and pieces of the physics, chemistry, software, um, um, where's our human systems interactions with this thing? What let us down that we have this problem or failure? And our curiosity approach to doing failure analysis goes a long way to identifying the underlying root causes to it. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I remember those terms and I, I'd have to still got to look it up, but yeah. Some of us remember some things better than others. Maybe it was my uh, particular teacher in that trig class. Um, but the, the, the idea is, is that we probably learn more informally than we do formally. And it's by happenstance, by things show up, by, you know, uh, recently I, I was on the road last night running some errands and it was like, oh, there's signs up that say there's going to be uh, road work on this one. So, hmm. I learned something. I'm going to, next time I venture in this direction, I, I may actually do 
an alternate route to avoid uh, the delays that are bound to happen with road work. And I'll quickly forget that, you know, once this road work is done and I don't have to, and I learn that it's over and it's finished and so on. Around here, that may be a while, but the, the idea is, is that we learn stuff all the time. Some of it is, is that, and there's a barrier, sometimes we, we ignore information and we end up in a traffic jam. And so it's, my point is, is that between formal education and informal education, it's equivalent to terabytes and terabytes of information. And very, very few of us keep all of that. And so it's, we're bound to forget, right? We also, in, in a handful of you were talking about, we learn the hard way, or we learn by jumping in the deep end or taking on challenges or facing obstacles or things like that. And I'm lumping this all together with problem solving. And this comes up with engineering is, well, we have a problem, we have a feature we wanna add, and I need to learn a, a new way to solve this problem. It's one of the facets of engineering that I love is that there's no end to problems to solve. And many of them have not been solved yet. And so going about he, he, pulling on the knowledge that we and our team has and, and the society in general and coming up with a way to say, well, let's try this, this, and this and see which one works and then build on that. We also do it with failure analysis type things. The issue is, is that it, it's one of the things that leads to a problem of forgetting. And, and I, I know I'm, I've mentioned this book before and I keep bringing it up because it talks about, this is a, a book called Design Paradigms. It's by Henry Petrosky. And he talks about that the, and he, he studied railroad bridges. He's more of a his engineering historian type uh, uh, study. And railroad bridges in the 1800s were well-documented structures and the failures were well-documented when a bridge would collapse. And so the first design of say a trussle bridge for a train was way over-engineered. It was by the leading engineering teams and engineers of the day. And they had a reputation to, with, uh, to uphold, but they also knew what they knew and they knew that this was a new concept. And so we're gonna make sure it doesn't fail. So it was, probably 10 times stronger than it needed to be for what its solution was. The issue was, is, and we see this in organizations, is the, the newest, greatest cutting edge technology. When we get into these, you know, uh, the next generation of ICs, the, the folks designing those chips are not your college grads, you know, coming out and saying, oh, we know how to do this now. They didn't learn how to solve problems that didn't exist years prior in college. They learned lots of procedures and techniques and problem solving skills, but they didn't learn that particular thing. So there's a whole lot of unknowns. And those kinds of investments tended to go to your most senior, most experienced, most accomplished talent in the organization. But once they cracked that, once they got to five nanometers or whatever the threshold was at the day, then they taught a bunch of other people and they went off and continued to evolve that and so on. And that those top people 
went on to work on the two and a half nanometer or the next threshold that they were working on. And then over two or three generations of engineers and cycles and stuff, the, the say 10 nanometer or whatever the size was 10 years ago, that's old hat. That's taught in school. That's no big deal. We've got most of the problems solved. We just need to stay stable in our supply chain. It's a piece of cake. Junior engineers go deal with that. What Petrosky talks about is that the danger is, is that when it's the standard practice, the consideration of where the boundaries are, where the barriers are, where the unknowns are, diminish. And you're also coupling that with less experienced engineers that don't, under, don't recognize when they're treading on thin ice, basically, to also talk about that, dive into the deep end. They just don't recognize, they don't have the experience to feel like this isn't really known yet. We need to deal with it. And that's why a bridge would fail. Trestle, the first trestle bridge built in England for trains is still standing. Yet the, about 30 years later, a junior engineer went out to solve a problem for a trestle bridge and went one foot too far and, and, and the supports were you know, a bit too, too narrow and a train that was a bit heavy went over it and it collapsed. And it was, some of it's cost cutting, some of it is not learning from the past because some of that past stuff wasn't carried forward institutionally, we forgot all of the issues that were revolving around the head of that senior engineer, senior designer, when they first put together the first concept bridge. So when in doubt, add more margin, add more trusses, add more support, uh, use, you know, make it more robust to account for the things you just don't know. Well, that message gets diluted as it becomes more commonplace. And eventually we run into one of those barriers where that was not well documented or articulated. You know, it was, it was the question we get in, in all kinds of products is why did they do it that way? We could do it this way and save a lot of money. We don't really need something that holds a hundred foot pounds when the loads is only one foot pound. Let's thin that out. Let's make it easier to go. Well, part of it is the we filter immediate solutions to well that worked but what doesn't come with it is well why was it done that way what was the concept why is this so over designed and and we get lost in it we look at it as a cost cutting uh, opportunity and then we it leads to failures and that's just one of eight paradigms that petrosky talks about and it's a generational thing as things become, as a, a particular solution becomes more common, it leads to problems. So that's one way we forget as an organization and there's others. So what have you forgotten today? This is a rhetorical question, but I quite, I, if you knew what you forgot, you haven't forgotten it. So that's one key to how this works is we, routinely forget things. And many of those things just really don't matter. Um, for the last, I don't know, year or so, I, and it, it came out of, uh, I've been recording what we had for dinner. 
uh, I have a little notebook and I write down the names of the dishes that we prepared and served for dinner. And I started doing that because it would be two or three days later, we'd find a, a container of sauce of some sort in the refrigerator and go, hmm, you remember what sauce this is? You know, also I've gotten better at putting labels on things, but the idea was, is that, well, we made this as a little bit extra. It was good, but what was it? And, and I, you know, we go through new recipes all the time and we're trying all kinds of different things in the kitchen. And we end up with experiments in the back of the kitchen and those are easy to sort out, but when it still looks good and tastes good and, and it's like, well, we want to make some more of this and then completely forgot what it was. So it's, it just started making a note and it's come in handy as I go back into like, oh, we had this and this, this was really good. Uh, let's make that again. We have the right ingredients or it's something we'd like to share with our friends or whatever. Uh, but I found that just jotting down the titles of these things enabled me to look back and go, oh, what is this thing in the refrigerator? And two is, oh, what, you know, um, what did we have that we really enjoyed? We remember the, the memory of enjoying a meal, but then it was like, well, what recipe was it? And so that's why I've been logging these things. This is just a reminder for me. What I found is that I, we, I set up reminders. My wife has a technique where she puts something out of place to say, I got to remember to take something to the post office or do whatever. And we have, all of us have little tricks and habits to help us remember what we want to remember. The hard part, especially at work, and when we're busy trying to meet a deadline or achieve goals or get products going or get the factory up and running and get things stable, all of those things are day-to-day -day pressures that tend to just force out things that don't rise to today's uh, front and center issue that we're trying to solve. And I've come out of an office and forgot completely where I, for, I parked. And sometimes we set up you know, all kinds of different mechanisms and park in the same place all the time. If you notice in classrooms, we tended to sit in the same seat, even if it wasn't an assignment to sit in a particular place. Yeah, Carl, thanks for the, the cognitive decline. I got a lot of that going on. I've been using, it's, I'm having a senior moment for decades and it usually gets me over the rough spot there for a moment. The the concept of Carl, you bring up about AI storing lessons learned. I have yet to see that actually be useful. And one of the big barriers is that most people, most organizations, and I'm not sure I should include lawyers with most people, don't want to record failures. If you had a, a recall, it's in public space, right? It's the government stepped in and said, no, that's a recall and it's documented to some extent, not always. Yet internally, do you share your fracas system with the public, with your customers? I suspect no, right? You're emitting all of the warts and issues and problems and mistakes and errors and oversights and everything else which the marketing team suggests is not all that good for selling your next product. 
I don't know if that's true or not. I'd much rather work with somebody that was honest with me that it's a messy process to create a product and here's where their trade-offs are. Then I could judge whether that would work for my application or not. Did they think of, you know, the, the weight of a, a redwood tree or a branch falling on, on their solar panel? Uh, probably not, mostly because we'd hardly get sun on the forest floor. Uh, not a lot of application of solar where I live. But the idea is, is that we have all these mechanisms. Carl's bringing up checklists and, and you know, guidelines and all kinds of stuff. We do a lot to try to remember the important stuff. And, and that's good. It's not a bad thing. Now, we forget. I've been talking about this right from the start, right? One of the things that organizations do, besides individuals forgetting things, is that people leave. They get promoted, they move to another division, they move to another company, they retire. I know in the um, uh, maintenance world, in the trades, there's a significant problem industry-wide is that there's not enough people going into the trades, not enough young folks getting trained and update, coming up to speed and how to do plumbing or electrical work or, or mechanical work or welding, all of those skills just have a severe shortage of people replacing the ones that are retiring. I just saw yesterday that the, um, this year there's going to be a record number of people retiring from work at the age where they can retire. I don't know how many are actually retiring, but they expect somewhere in the order of 10 or 12 million people to retire. And next year is gonna set a new record. Apparently I was born uh, a year too early to be on the peak of this, re this uh, uh, I think it was the second baby boom or something like that. But it was the idea is that we've got a, a, a pocket of aging out people and it's really being felt in the trades in the, in the uh, where they just have had a decades long lack of people getting into that. And there's lots and lots of reasons for that. But the idea is, is that when your senior mechanic walks out, so does all of that experience. So does all of that memory of what are great techniques and the history of the equipment you've got. Uh, all of that goes, they just walks out with them. And, People are working, different organizations are working out to capture that. What AI doesn't do is quite have the, the, the training material to do it because it's not well-documented. You know, Harry's been here forever. He knows that equipment, he can fix it. Nobody actually figured out how he did it, how he knows that and how, where did he learn it? Where, where's all this information? having the manuals and the maintenance guides and all those things as a start, but it's not the same as the experience of actually doing it. And so AI can replicate the manuals for us, but I don't think it can replicate your senior, very experienced uh, technicians that are walking out the door. Yeah, and Michael, you're exactly right. The, the early generations of nuclear power design teams, that was a long time ago. There are a handful of people trying to bring it back and learn it. It also reminds me of uh, the Saturn V rocket from NASA that went to the moon in the 60s, in the early 70s. Um, even though we have the plans, we don't know how to build it. We, we couldn't replicate it as original 
and make it work. And so the part of it is just healthy for us in the way our brain works. We have, you know, we remember like I do three things when I go to the grocery store, but after I get them in the cart, that list does no meaning to me anymore. I'm gone. I'm done. And I forget it. The other part is, is that, is it important to me? Well, it was important that I remember what my wife asked me to get at the store. So it had the importance flag uh, uh, tied to it. Um, if you've um, experienced a hurricane, a, a devastating hurricane or an earthquake, it's, well, you were there and you can, you know, where were you on that date? And did you feel it? And wh where were you at? Most people remember that experience of some uh, event or disaster or assassination or uh, the moon landing, if, if you're old enough, um, because you were there, you experienced it and it was very memorable and it got moved into long-term memory because you talked about it for weeks afterwards and, and then brought it up on a routine basis. So what's funny about our memory is we have the short-term piece, which is really to get us from room A to room B and remember why we went there. Long-term memory is, you know, uh, like my wife's birthday. That's been cemented because I forgot it once. And so that, that's a great way to, to make it clear that it's important that you remember. It's normal to forget. It's not a problem. It, the issue is, is that it's a gray, fuzzy area, is that we are often not in direct control of what we have to remember because it's often not clear that we need to remember it at the time. And that gets us in trouble within organizations and design teams and so on. And a handful of you already talked about some of this is that, well, we have all kinds of techniques for you know, from checklists to, to procedures and stuff like that to help our memories, especially as an organization. Let's see, there's a couple other comments here. Peace bringing up. Seems like a big part of learning problems that you're raising is knowing what is important to learn. I agree. And sometimes we really don't know until we've already forgotten it. And then we're like, mm, didn't I learn something about trigonometry someday? If you got that much, you can go back and find it. Most informal training is follow someone around for a few days. I also call that, you know, learning the ropes. Um, but that's also a bit about, you know, there's no textbook that says in this particular team, even though Sally's not the boss, she's the one that calls the shots on how things get done around here. So learning who's in charge, who's informally in charge, who's got great experience and willing to share it, who do you just don't want to cross because they'll cause your problems. Some of it's the informal stuff that it allows you to know the lay of the land kind of thing. But also the organization on an engineering part is, well, what is our safety margin on this style of this aspect of our product? Is it documented? Is it not documented? Most organizations don't document all that kind of things. And, and it's never clarified what actually is most important details to know. That's true. Yeah, that trig professor or teacher I had probably thought all of that stuff was very important. And then she held from us what was going to be on the test so that we would arbitrarily learn a lot more stuff than we needed to. Uh, 
if I knew I wanted to measure the height of my trees 60 years ago or 50 years ago, um, I probably would have remembered the formula and been able to recall it pretty easily, but I didn't have that crystal ball. And I don't think any of us do. It's, and part of what Keith goes on with is it takes years to become good and have the, you have to figure it out because the key items are not stated and everyone else has to relearn it. Everyone has to relearn it. There's a lot to that. And each of us have different paths to the world and different problems and issues we're facing and different things we've learned. And when those match up, you're, you're considered a genius. When they don't, you go lear learn it again. Hopefully recalling memories and relearning something's a bit quicker. I, I think we learn how to learn is one of the things that colleges try to teach us. And that's very, very useful. The issue is, is that when our product goes out and it, it's failing for a cause that we learned the hard way three years ago. And it's like, well, that's not really, that's a problem. We need to, to learn better than that. And so there's what we call a whole pile of, uh, of uh, uh, techniques that allow us to remember things. And so one of the things, and I know I've talked about this in numerous times in the past, when I'm visiting a client and we have lunch and it's like, well, what do we talk about at lunch? And I almost always will ask, so what are the three big disasters you've had, you know, related to reliability or quality type stuff? And they go off. And the four or five people sitting at the table all remember this one big event like four years ago that they, we worked all weekends. They, it was all hands on deck. It was, you know, cost them millions of dollars, blah, blah, blah. It, and everybody knows where they were, what they were doing, how important it was, and so on and so on. Great. The second story they all generally remember, it's not quite as big of a story. And then they all disagree on what the third biggest one is. And they have different memories and different times they've been in the organization and so on. And then I'll, that usually takes half an hour, these great stories of, of disasters within the company. And then I said, well, what was the fourth one? And they all look at me like, well, we know there was, we, we routinely, you know, every couple of months, there's something that's not right or has a problem or something like that. And at the time it was important, but we don't know. We, some will have some regulations out to four or five on that list. Some will, won't go much further than through two or three. And that's a problem because I've run into more and more organizations that tend to repeat mistakes. Oh, that's the same form, fit, and function. That won't be a problem. Yeah, that might work five out of 10 times for your electronics parts from different suppliers, but it's the other five that don't work that we tend to forget that that, or oh, this is a minor issue, that we've brushed across this, this, this story before, and then we forget that it actually was a problem until it becomes a legend, until it becomes something we talk about to a complete stranger at lunch about how bad that particular issue was. The idea is, is that as organizations, we're just in, in, um, engulfed in things we're learning. And it's very, very natural for us to forget. Hence, checklists and all these other things that come around. And so we've talked about some of these things in some of the areas. 
I've, I've seen them coming through on the chats, but we, we use Fracas and Kappa. So, and it's just, as you're developing a product, or you're setting up a program, um, you know, I'm starting a new project with the Shendo of trying to get older uh, uh, articles and, and, and content updated and refreshed and, and sorted out so they're easier to find and, and use and, and actually are more readable. Um, the issue is, is that there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things going on. So I have a, a checklist going on, on a package I use as that monitors checklists. It's not a fracas system by any means, but it, oh, I need to do this. I need to set up this. I need to address this. I need to figure out this problem. And I, as I'm getting engulfed in the project, there's dozens of things that I'm just going to jot down and circle back to because they do need to get done, but not right now kind of thing. And then I'll organize it and sort it out and do more like a project plan to go solve all these issues. And I'm, I'm quite sure most of you are familiar with Fracas and Kappa, but the idea is, is that if we don't make a note of it, the issue tomorrow morning will take precedence, even though the one today is actually more important because tomorrow is fresh. It's right on our bench. Yesterday's was yesterday. And it might take us a week or two to solve yesterday's problem. We might need some samples. We might, might need to run some testing. We might need to you know, get some parts fabricated. And then it's off our desk for a few hours or a few days. And it's easy to forget about it. And we get some samples in and go, what were we going to do with this? So we write it down. We write down what the symptoms were, what the problem is, what the consequences are. We often have a, 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 a process to triage those, what's important, what's not important, and then work it all the way through to resolve. Now, also know, most of you know that these fracas and kappa systems are supposed to actually include the long-term solution, right? So let's fix the immediate problem. Let's get to the underlying causes of our system so that we can prevent future problems from occurring. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but the, I suspect most of you would agree is that that's the hard part, is getting that long-term solution in place and embedded in the organization. Now, we're not only fighting individuals' memories and the deluge of things we're learning all the time. We're also going against, well, if we have to change our procedure, if we have to modify the techniques we're using, if we have to use different checks and balances, if we change the system, as you know, many of you know, change management is not trivial. So there's plenty of resistance to changing what we do, even though we learned that there's a better way. That is a, and we, as smart people, take on the important ones, the most important changes that need to occur, and help that uh, uh, happen within the organization. But we don't do it with every single issue. We just don't have the bandwidth to do it. Yeah, and, it, yeah, and I agree with Michael is that it's really bad when it's expensive solution. I, I posit that it's also difficult when it's just a change of the way we do things around here. When it's a fundamental change to how we go about doing business and making decisions those can be exceedingly difficult to change. And it's talking about the culture of an organization. But we use Fracas and Kappa to deal with things that we learned 
by saying, oh, that's not right. That shouldn't work that way. That didn't happen. Or the customers are saying, hey, this is a failure. There's Here's problems that we have in the field and we need to resolve and so on. We have decent systems to deal with things that don't work. Unfortunately, that last part, that preventative part is difficult. Now, if how about when you learn something and it wasn't from a customer complaint, it wasn't a recall, it wasn't foundationally memorable just on its and the facts of the issue, yet it would make a huge difference. We often really struggle to get those kinds of things through an organization or set up. Or even worse is when you have a senior engineer that retires, moves on, moves to another position and is gone. And they were the, the eyes and ears of spotting dozens and dozens of issues at every review. They're the ones that wrote the checklist and knew what the, all these steps were. But when they left, they weren't there to facilitate that anymore. They weren't a, there to spot the issues that they were really good at. How do you replace that knowledge with somebody else that doesn't have that role or that experience? That's a problem. So some of the systems I've seen over the years, and I've worked, I don't know, hundreds of different companies and done, I think I'm just shy of 200 formal assessments of reliability programs in different groups, different teams and organizations. And when I get to the lessons learned part, what do you do for remembering what you've learned the hard way in the past? And they, it's almost always, well, we count on the people that we have to remember it. And so we do reviews, we have, you know, engineering, engineering reviews, we have uh, discussions, we have weekly meetings, and bringing up new ideas, we have mentors, you know, coaching the younger engineers, things like that. We count on the experience of the people we have. Well, what happens when Sarah's not at that meeting for that review? Who fills in that role? Because she's the one with the most experience. Oh, we just make sure we, Sarah's at the meeting. We reschedule it if she can't be there. Well, that works for a while until she's gone. Checklists for reviews, right? I ran into one organization that every time they had a, a major lesson to learn, a problem, usually a field-related problem, they would add it to the checklist. Their design was driven by the checklist. They had no time for anything else. We need to check this. We need to test that. We need to organize that. And it's like, well, these things are all for your previous design. And it says, what happens when this design meets everything on the checklist? Does it work perfectly? And they says, no, it's never has. And they've been doing this for like 10 years. And, says, and their checklist was amazingly long. And they had things on the checklist to make sure that they weren't using technology from 10 years ago. Like, hmm, there seems to be a fundamental problem with this logic. If every time you launch a product, you learn something new the hard way, but you've checked for all the ways you've learned stuff in the past, obviously you're not checking for things that you are new. What's the, the new components? What's the, the vital few things that you have less information about? What do you do to check those? Well, the first response from the program manager is, well, we should put that on the checklist. Okay. I think you missed the point here. But um, the idea was is that they thought, well, the best way to avoid repeating mistakes is to check for them. 
what ended up happening is they forgot to, to examine what could go wrong. Things like an FMEA was not on the checklist, or if it was on the checklist, they did a, a cursory FMEA so they could check it off. They didn't actually learn anything or use the, the study for any practical purposes. It was simply to check it off the list. You can see where that led them and they continued to have problems. Another organization, this was a big organization, said, well, we record everything. And this was before cloud servers and all the other stuff is that they had meeting minutes that were required for every meeting. You recorded the meeting, who was there, what are the main topics, any takeaways, any action items, and it was recorded. It was basically a PDF that was stuck in a database, not even a database. It was just stuck in a repository. The issue they had was that there was no librarians. They had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of documents in this repository. And they were self um, keyworded. So they would have a project name and maybe the project manager's name and maybe keywords about what was talked about in that particular meeting. But they also did this with test plans, test results, project plans, uh, volumes of products, uh, uh, customers, uh, monthly Paredos of what was failing in the field, on and on and on. Everything from business meetings to engineering meetings to drawings, everything. I mean, everything went into this repository. And there wasn't a clear lexicon. So if you search for capacitor, you'd find hundreds of documents. But if you search for capacitors with an S, you would get hundreds and hundreds of different documents. If you search for uh, uh, Rubicon as a vendor, you would get thousands of comments. But if you search for capacitor vendors, you would get yet another list of vendors and, and issues and documents and so on. So going into it was like going into a great big vault full of paper everywhere with no organization well, modest organization at best. The old stuff is buried deeper, but electronically, it's hard to see that. When they would get a new person in, they'd say, oh, go review the, the, the database, the, the repository. And it's like staring at, you know, reams and reams of paper that had no context for them and no, you know, anything they could do with it. They eventually ended up hiring a bunch of people that were called librarians. There were subject matter experts that would organize. Here's the 10 best things we've learned about capacitors, for example. So if you were having a capacitor issue, that was a great place to start. And then you would usually run into a bunch of names that you could go talk to them and pull out what you really needed to know. But it took them years to recognize that recording everything was about equivalent to recording nothing until they actually put some system in place together to make that work. And it was also onerous. People really didn't like having to record everything in a particular structures and formats. And later the librarians enforce, you know, standardized keywords and stuff like that. And it, it was a lot of resistance to just putting everything in there because they knew it wasn't all that useful. And so that was two extremes I saw. It's like, you, we just have smart people until they leave or they're not home there that day, or we record everything, we can't find anything. And 
part of that system made it very, very informal across the organization, either whether it's the massive checklist or the database, is that most people still had to go make relationships with those that knew how things got done and what mistakes we made in the past. So that didn't work all that well. Now, I know I have a whole uh, webinar just on golden nuggets from years ago, but I thought I'd, I'd recap it once real quick. And this is, so there's lots of ways organizations go about trying to remember what we need to know. Now, this organization that I ran into is definitely not my invention. And for the part of my memory is forgotten, but I think I've always called him Phil, and I believe his name was Phil. And he was a technical marketing manager in an organization that was really struggling. And their products routinely let their customers down. They were constantly getting calls from uh, major customers, you know, demanding this, demanding that, getting things fixed. They were in firefighting mode 24 seven. And trying to hold a meeting with, a, you know, do an interview or assessment with these folks was a nightmare because they were called out for this emergency or that emergency multiple times a day. And they were in complete chaos. And they ended up with an issue that because they were so stressed and they were trying to cut money on their next product line, they ended up taking out three layers of ESD protection, electrostatic discharge protection on, and they were connecting an ethernet cable to a port. Well, the connector itself had a device to knock down any spikes of, of uh, a surge of, of voltage. Well, it's a cost reduction to not have that in there. And they thought, well, there's two other barriers to ESD, so they were good, but they didn't check with the other two parts of the team to see if that was still true or not. Meanwhile, the other two, as you can see where the story is going, the other two barriers, one in the circuitry uh, on the board and another one at the entrance to the IECs that was most sensitive to it, they both did the exact same thing and did cost reductions and remove the protections, assuming the other two would still be there. Well, of course, then anytime you plugged in an Ethernet cable, you pretty much blew out the, the controller uh, IEC and that product was dead. Well, at that point, they're out of money, they're losing customers. Um, the general manager asked Phil, fix this, make sure we don't make this mistake ever again. And Phil was like, well, do you have a budget? No. Do you have, can I have hire somebody? No. Uh, when do you need it? Now. And so what Phil did <clears throat> is he wrote up with his marketing flair, this particular issue with a catchy title, a memorable title. Um, I think the one for ceramic capacitors was ceramic cap capacitors break or something catchy like that. He was the technical marketing guy. And he ended up with a list, I think it was eight or nine things on his first list. And there was a new product launching or, or getting started in a couple of weeks. And so he went, sat down with the program manager just as they were getting organized. They didn't have their team in place yet. They didn't have their priorities yet. They had very little budget. And so Phil figured that if I go set up a meeting and saying, what are you going to do about capacitors fracturing? What are you gonna do about 
um, ESD protection and making sure that it's there. And what are you going to do about this? That it refreshed the program manager at a critical point when they could prioritize avoiding those classes of defects. And so these major lessons learned weren't, oh, this particular, we, we made these assumptions and we stripped out all the ESD protection, is we did not check the assumptions. And how are you going to avoid that? And with capacitors, it was, there's lots of ways capacitors break, but remembering that they're fragile was the, the key lesson. And so it was a little bit of generalizing those lessons learned into a, like a class of defects that the organization had made at least one time and made those mistakes. And by intervening right at that initial setting the priorities, it got built into the plan that we're going to take care of capacitors, we're going to take care of checking assumptions, things like that. And, and what Phil asked for is, well, who's going to do that? How are you prioritizing? What's the tangible plan to do this? And those meetings took 20 minutes, 30 minutes. That's it. Then Phil would come back at kind of a, a major checkpoint later in that program, kind of before they committed to producing this product and said, all right, you know, Jenny, you program manager, how did it go? Did you check these assumptions? Did you follow through with working on making sure you're not fracturing capacitors? Who did that? What are the reports? What's the evidence that you did this? And they had set that expectation. They were going to come back and visit. And Phil was on that team that would have veto power say, no, this product's not ready. You didn't cover the earlier pieces of this that you've committed to doing. Well, what happened was, is that the, the list of major lessons learned after five years grew to about 18 things. It wasn't everything. It wasn't every single thing in the Kappa or, or fracas systems. It was those major lessons learned, the fundamental structures of how they went about doing their business that they were checking on to catch these fundamental mistakes. And that comes back to Henry Petrosky's book. He talks about eight different paradigms and, and they had, I think, two or three examples of each one of those paradigms in their fundamental list. And so they were very selective of what they included or would they just uh, generalize one of the other ones? Did this fit one of the, the types of issues we've run into before? but they only had two meetings. Each was about a half an hour. And after five years, they had never made a repeat mistake on anything that was on that list. And, and many other things too, because they got much more proactive at looking for problems that could have been on this list or were similar to things on this list. Ended up being is that the the product that we're, they were making got obsoleted just from technology advancement. So the, the division was eventually dissolved. Yet when, one of the things that we learned from the struggles they did was that there is a really good way to make sure your organization doesn't forget. You capture that information. It's from hard lessons learned. 
but also it we generalized that when I was at HP into guidelines, into best practices, documents like that, that we use for training, for documentation, uh, and for part of this is the way we do things here. But it wasn't just imposed on anybody. It was a lot of work to create these documents, getting lots of inputs and conversations and buy-in and all those other things. But it was really after we learn a lot in building products and selling products and dealing with issues and failures. What are the essence? What's the short answer that we need to remember as an organization? And make sure that that guideline set of documents, that this list of, of golden nuggets are not forgotten. And that involves a proactive Let's set up a meeting. Let's go do some training. Let's reinforce this during reviews and so on. It's looking through your life cycle is where are those critical junctions and points where you have leverage, where there's, there's actual inflection on how this thing gets done. And it includes derating guidelines and stress strength deals and, and thinking through your, your um, safety margins and things like that. What are the techniques that we need to embed within the organization in a very deliberate way. Golden Nuggets was one of the best I'd ever run across. Yeah, Carl, the Bible really could be. And any of the religious documents are, are guidelines to, to live a healthy, meaningful life. There's no doubt about it. The idea is, is that we use stories so often as a, a way humans remember things. And I think that's one of the last pieces I want to mention about golden nuggets. Each one of those was one of those lunchtime stories that when you ask, what was the big issue that happened when I was at this organization, it was pretty clear that, you know, three different parts of the team, assuming the other two would uh, not take out the ESD protection was, oh yeah, that was a big mistake that, you know, that was a top hit for them. And that they remembered that and they, all the issues around it and all the, the trouble it caused. And that one they would probably remember as long as that organization existed because it was talked about regularly. But number three, four, five, number 18, definitely not. Those would have been repeated. And the, the ESD, the not checking assumptions on and assuming that other parts of the team would do not do something, do or not do something, that was like the fourth or fifth time that the failure analysis said, oh, this is the same fundamental problem that we're repeating over and over again in, in the life of this product. And part of it was they were, they were in that vicious cycle where they were so busy addressing fires and running around trying to get things going. They didn't really have the luxury to check assumptions. They, they, it was really difficult just to even get the coffee pot refilled in the morning. That was the biggest complaint I had with them. But the idea is there are ways to do it. And these guys out of desperation and the brilliance of this guy, Phil, came up with a process that was essentially free and had a profound impact on that organization. And so it's one that I talk about quite often and I regularly recommend. Let's see. So I think this is my last question for you. What's working for you? You know, what what techniques or or processes are you using so that you don't 
have organizational lapses that you end up repeating a mistake that you, I'm using air quotes here, learned the hard way previously. Yeah, look at that. I actually finished it a little bit early, but I also wanted to mention, I was going to, Keith, I was, if you're still here, um, I wanted to mention, I, I got this idea uh, from Naveen uh, I was talking to you this morning about doing a, a conversation platform instead of a webinar or a podcast where we're talking at you. And I try to ask lots of questions, engage some of that. And I thoroughly enjoy the input and feedback, but to make it more of a five minutes, here's the topic we're bringing up today. And so what do you think? And then ask people to raise their hands and open their mic and, and have our conversation, a professional conversation that we, if we're at a conference, we would probably do spontaneously in the hallway, but try to do that on a different platform. So I'm going to experiment with the, uh, a platform of how to do that. And um, we'll announce it when I get figured out the mechanics of it. We'll see if I can do it. So let's see, Keith's saying, so basically you pose the question, how do we create a, a hive mind for the organization? How can it happen if there's there are singular experts. Well, part, yeah, and I, I think I understand the question is singular experts or subject matter experts often garner a lot of personal um, benefit, either being recognized or getting promoted or being called upon for important subjects and so on. It's part of ego, it's part what they work for. They might even get promoted and, and, and bonuses and stuff like that. They get the, the, uh, their private parking spot out front, all those kinds of things. It's a disincentive for them to share what they know and unless it's important to share. And if you think that through, if the only time you ask somebody is when it saves the company, they're not going to point it out before it saves the company. Now, that's a, a personality flaw, but it's also structurally set up in organizations that we're going to create a firefighter as opposed to the preventative system. There's more dynamics of that. That might be a whole other piece of it. But the part of it is to make it safe to share what you know and make it a reward to prevent problems. The value is in preventing a major recall, not in solving a major recall. It's in that really difficult to do because if you do things well, and you don't have problems, it's not visible. And so part of our role is to identify those things that are exceedingly valuable that don't show up in the evening news. And that takes a lot of energy to do, at least has been in my experience. Michael's talking about we revise field procedures. How do you documents to encompass the lessons learned? Yep, good. Yeah, and I, I've seen that a lot in uh, customer support, the better customer support organizations actually learn, well, this actually solved the problem the first time. And part of that usually includes making sure you're listening well to what, what the problem is and understand what the issue is before you... Uh, you know, say restart the modem, uh, restart the, the router. Journaling is a good practice for lessons learned. I don't know. I think it's a good way. Journaling I'm thinking of is, is a good way for individuals to prepare themselves to write a, a lessons learned well. It's practice of 
how do I explain this concept? How do I describe this? Am I covering everything? Those kinds of things. But if I had everybody in the organization journaling for say half an hour a day about what they learned that day, I'm going to end up with that repository of thousands of you know, mind-numbing documentation of well, what's important. So there's no, um, I think it's a practice to get better at writing and thinking through the problem, but it's not the end document we want. So those kinds of things. So anyway, we're, I'll stay in the line. I'm going to shut down the recording. Thank <laughs> you.